Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Okay, we're going to be in John chapter 5 tonight. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Uh, who wrote the Gospel of John? <laughs> that sounds like a dumb question, but there are scholars that are going pouring over that very question. Who was it? John. Which one? The beloved disciple, right? Okay. Um, anybody know about when most... Uh, most people date John. Okay, some say around 80. Okay. Anybody else? We studied Revelation for quite a while. I think we talked about it quite a bit. Some think as late as 95. 95, so... Um, if Jesus dies on the cross around A.D. 30, which is a pretty good guess, I think, um, then uh, that puts it 60, 65 years after the events. Somebody asked me a question last week. Um, remember the woman at the well? Where were the disciples when Jesus was talking at, with the woman at the well? They were in town. What were they doing? Getting Taco Bell, right? Doing something like that. And so Jesus is talking at, with the woman at the well, and so somebody asked me last week, how did John know about that conversation? And so, what do you think? Jesus may have told them, okay? Anybody remember how many days they spent in Samaria after that? She might have been kind of talkative, yep, Okay. Yeah, they were there two days, so there was conversation to be had. So somehow, John is an eyewitness, but when he's not there, there are other, other occasions to talk about what's happening. And so, um, you know, that's a long time to write after uh, the Gospels, but uh, I wanted to mention some things about this. Uh, he heard other people recount the events. Maybe he heard Jesus talk about it, as we mentioned. Um, and so one of the questions that comes up, or I had at least early on, was uh, wouldn't, if they wrote the gospel that far removed from the events, wouldn't they forget? Wouldn't they forget? Okay, so I want to mention some things that I think might help us with this because uh, some people think Mark may have been written in the early 60s, uh, Luke sometime in the 70s, Matthew sometime right around that same time, and then... Um, John, of course, later on, whether it's the 80s, I tend to think it's probably in the 90s. If John's born in AD 10, that puts him about 20 years old at the resurrection, and that puts him in his mid to late 80s uh, at the time of the writing. And so wouldn't he forget at that point? Uh, let me mention a few reasons why um, John would have been able to write such a thing at such a late date. Number one is that the memory of the life of Jesus would have been hard to forget. If you had seen those things firsthand, it would be hard to forget that, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Okay. Uh, a second thing I think related to that would be 
that he's been recounting these stories over and over since they happened. So he's been telling the the stories over and over again. And something that we we take for granted in our day is that we, we write a lot of things down, and now we've got a lot of technology that can keep track of things for us. Uh, but they find that when you uh, recount something over and over again, it gets etched in your memory. And so you have to remember that Jesus' culture was an oral culture. Okay, So they passed on things through oral tradition. They told the story over and over and over. Remember the, the command to the Israelites in Deuteronomy was, uh, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you're going in, when you're coming out, talk about these things over and over and over. We get tired of that kind of repetition, but that's how it gets etched in our memory. So uh, an example of that was when I was in Bible college, I had a professor in uh, the class of personal evangelism, Dr. Watson, and he would say the same things almost every day for the class. So then, uh, at the end of the class, we all knew it was coming because it was kind of legendary around our school. We all knew that the final was going to be, what did you learn in this class? And you had to recount the things he told us. And I wrote from memory eight pages of notes, almost word for word from what he said, because he said it over and over again until it was nauseating. It works. And, you know, the way, what... You got to say it over and over again. See, that's the trick. So uh, John would have uh, said these things over and over again, and then in addition to that, he has the help of the other gospels. They've already been written. The reason that John is so unique in comparison to Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that uh, they they think that Matthew and Luke borrow a little bit from Mark. But when it comes to the end of John's life, he's already read those Gospels or is familiar with them, and he has some different stories that haven't been told yet that he wants to tell. And I think one of the, maybe besides the resurrection, seems the only miracle that's repeated in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. that interesting? And John says at the end of his um, Gospel that if the miracles Jesus did... Uh, were written down, the books of the world can contain all that he had done. He'd done some amazing things. So John, um, of course, has the vivid memories of what Jesus has done. Uh, he's been telling it over and over again. He has the help of the other Gospels to reinforce those things. And then the, the final thing, I think, is that he has the Holy Spirit to prompt him about what things need to be written. This is not just John saying, you know what would make a really good book? The Holy Spirit is inspiring him. And you remember it says that the the Spirit will come. He will remind you of all the things that I've said. He will make those things known to you. And a thing operates, uh, the, the principle, not the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't call the Holy Spirit the thing. But the principle operates the same in our lives. It says we remember Scripture the Holy Spirit, or we memorize it, the Holy Spirit can bring that up when it's needed. And so this is the one, uh, one of the important things about Bible study is that the Holy Spirit will use the raw material of the Scriptures and apply it to our lives. And so it's good to know it. And so John, of course, would have remembered those things, but the Holy Spirit would have brought them to mind too. So as he writes the Gospels, uh, there are all those factors working in. And so I thought I'd just take a, a few moments tonight. We've got a shorter passage here and talk about how John could remember those things. So 
John's point throughout his whole gospel, what's the one word that keeps coming up again and again in the gospel of John? Love, loves, that's true. That wasn't what I was expecting you to say, John, but that that is true. Love comes up again and again. What else? What Jesus definitely comes up again and again. That's a very Sunday school answer. Jesus. What about anything else? These things are written that you might believe and in believing have life in his name. So he wants us to know that Jesus is worthy of our belief. Uh, more worthy than all of the symbols. Okay, There's a lot of symbols and um, sometimes we attach great significance to symbols and the Old Testament's full of symbolism, isn't it? Some people would love to hang on to the symbol even more than they would the reality. Okay, And that, that's happening more than we realize. And Sometimes it happens accidentally, like we're so familiar with the symbol, we don't want to let go of it in light of the reality. And so here um, in these passages we've been studying, John's talking about water, and Jesus he's t- telling about what Jesus said about water. Uh, water is a symbol here. And so sometimes people want to hang on to the, the ceremonial and the symbolic rather than to dive deep into the reality. And let me give you an example of that in modern day life. And this applies close to home. And sometimes we Pentecostals can get superstitious. And it happens beyond our walls too and other churches. But think about this. We talk about believing in the cross, right? Have you ever heard somebody say that? We're believing in the cross, we're trusting in the cross, and we'll cherish the cross. And do we really mean we're cherishing that wooden implement of death? No, it's not. And we, what we really mean, I think, is that we're trusting what Christ has done on the cross. So when we sing about the cross, we're really using it as a symbol for the work of Christ and God showing his love towards us. But some people have failed to grasp the reality, and they hold on to the symbol. And so sometimes people wear crosses around their neck. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My my mom didn't like it uh, when people had crosses or wore them around their neck or whatever because she was afraid we were all going to fall into some kind of idolatry regarding those things. But sometimes people do. They hold on to that, and that symbol, they would rather have the symbol than the reality. And you can sometimes see this like as if, uh, you know, having a wooden cross or um, making a cross with your finger somehow wards off evil spirits. Like That's not what does it. The reality of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit is what does great work. It's not the symbol. It's the reality. Okay, You, you understand what I mean here? Like having a cross above your door doesn't bring blessing to your home. Well, that may be if they even exist, right? But and, and that's the point I'm trying to make is that we've got this superstitious view about these things rather than really clinging to the reality of Jesus is in your heart. You don't need a cross above your door to keep the evil away. You got Jesus to do that. Are you with me? I, I hope uh, what I'm saying makes sense. So we sometimes uh, gather around ourselves the symbols and we love those more than the reality. And another example of that is in uh, the Middle Ages, and even sometimes today, people hold on to relics. Are you familiar with that? Like there's supposed to be somewhere a splinter of the cross, and that splinter of the cross, whoever has it in their possession, can just walk free of any kind of attack from evil spirits because 
they've got this splinter from the cross, as if the enemy sees that piece of wood and goes, oh, that's terrifying. What the reality is, is it's what Christ has done, but uh, there's all kinds of nonsense that goes on like that, and we'd rather possess something tangible that's a symbol than a reality because it's not tangible to us. And so Jesus is, is battling with some of these things in the Gospel of John where people are putting up their symbols, and he shows himself to be superior to those things. And so we live, uh, we do live in a world filled with the miraculous, but he is most miraculous of all. All right, the encounters with Jesus in John. Let's take a look at our passage tonight. It's warm. I borrowed um, time last Wednesday and tried to give you back some time on Sunday, and then I borrowed even more. So let's do, see what we can do tonight. All right, let's look at John 5 and starting with verse 1. Sometime later, indefinite amount of time, we don't know when, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So let's pause here and get some context. Where was Jesus before in John 4? In Samaria. And where was he on his way to? Where? Mm -mm. He was on his way to Galilee. Remember, he left Jerusalem on his way to Galilee. And some, somehow now we've skipped ahead in the story and we're back in Jerusalem again. John's not so concerned with giving us an exact chronology or a time frame. What he's concerned with doing is showing us what Jesus is like. Are you with me on that? So sometime later, uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there's a, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is uh, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down and jumps in ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. <laughs> Do you think he he cared that much? Uh, I, I imagine he cared about um, God and what how what God thought of it. But there's more to that than this. We'll go through another section in just a moment. All right. So the first thing I want you to notice in this is the question. The question. This is in verses one through nine. A question comes up. What was the, What do you think is the most prominent question? There's there's two main ones here. What is it? Do you want to do you want to be do you want to be healed? Okay. Then uh, what's the other question? Who who did this? Who did this? All right. So the question. Uh, the first thing we see from the question here is the where. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish. Festivals. We see him there again in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We don't know which festival. Here's an interesting thing. Just apply it to your Bible study when it's necessary. 
whenever the Bible talks about Passover, it usually refers to it as the festival. Whenever it's talking about other festivals, it doesn't use the uh, definite article. It just talks about a festival or a Jewish festival. So this probably isn't Passover. This is something else. Okay, And we're not told what, and the reason that it must not be important is because it must not have affected uh, what this has to do with this miracle. If it were, God would have had John put it in there, but it's not significant. We just know that it's telling us the reason why he's in Jerusalem. He's there to celebrate the festival. And I'd like you to notice something. This is um, interesting to me because there's a lot of people I've met that want to be Christians, but they don't really like going to church. Now I'm preaching to the choir because you're here on a hot Wednesday night. So you like coming to church, right? Some people don't, and they don't want to do this thing. But the one thing I notice about Jesus is that he's the holiest person always in any room. He knows more than everybody else in any room he goes into. Do you agree with that? Okay. He's holier than everybody else. He's more spirit-filled than anyone else. But he goes to the festivals and he goes to church. The Bible tells us he went in the synagogue, and that was his custom. If anybody didn't need to go to church, Jesus didn't need to go to church. We needed Jesus to go to church. He didn't need to, but he did, and he set an example for us that no matter how spiritual we think we are, we need the body of Christ. We do. So Jesus goes to the festivals. He goes, he travels, and he makes his way down to Jerusalem. He goes to the synagogue on uh, the Sabbath it tells us there in chapter five, verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. There's a couple different uh, spellings on this, depending on which Greek manuscript you're looking at, but, uh, and it's surrounded by five co- uh, covered colonnades. Okay. So this is the where, and let's just take a look here. This is Jerusalem, kind of a uh, overview here. This wall up here may not have been there, but this is the old city of David right in here. Then you've got Nehemiah's walls, and then you've got the walls of Herod the Great, and then Herod Agrippa probably added his wall sometime during the life of Jesus. So this is the old city, and uh, up here is the temple, okay? And then you have gates around this, uh, different gates around this. And I thought that would take us right to, let's just go back. Here we go. Sorry about that. Right in this area here. You can see at the top, right by the temple, sheep gate right there. And then you've got these, these pools right here. Bethesda pools or the sheep gate pools are called the sheep's pools in some uh, estimation. And so just outside the temple precinct, I think this is the fortress of Antonia there where the Romans stayed, you've got a place where some people gathered and they were waiting for the waters to be stirred. All right. So um, then we come to the who. Let's see if we can get to that from here. All right, verses 3 through 5. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me once again. It says uh, here, um, 
Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he heard uh, and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? So here, a number of disabled people would lie. And it tells us uh, the different ailments that they had. And the verb that's used here when it says they used to, they used to lie there, uh, it's, uh, it's not in the past tense, which means they used to lie there at the time, but by the time Jesus gets there, they're not any, they're not any longer there. It's not a past tense verb. This is an imperfect, which means they used to lie there and there still are people lying there at the time that Jesus comes. This is really important. I, I don't know what's so significant about it, but he wants to tell us that there are people that are there, and we hear from the other guy in verse 7, the guy that Jesus is going to address. We don't know his name. Uh, he says, anytime I try to go get in the pool, somebody beats me to it. So there are other people that are there. Are, are you with me on that? That's significant because of what's about to happen, that there are other people. A great number of people used to be there. So why, why did John uh, tell us that Jesus just healed the one man and he didn't stick around. Now, I'd like you to notice that there's something missing from the NIV. I wouldn't even say it that way. It's not even the best way to say it. But you may notice in the NIV, the ESV, the NAS, etc. It goes right from the condition of the people to describing the man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And the reason for this is because our best and our oldest manuscripts don't have the part about the angel stirring the water. And what we think might have happened there is that some copyist who knew that added it as a note, kind of a, a description of why that took place. Somebody who was near there, somebody who knew that. But our best and oldest manuscripts, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but the oldest manuscripts we have, they're not, John's gospel is not the oldest gospel. Are you with me on that? People wrote gospels before that, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the oldest surviving fragments we have are from the Gospel of John. And this is amazing to me because we have nothing like this in anything in antiquity. Like uh, Homer, we don't have anything like this with him or any of the other classical writings. But we have a fragment from John, I think it's called the P52, Parchment 52, that even the liberals who would love to put that like in the 6th century somewhere and say this is developed far after, the liberals are dating it around 120 to 130 A.D., 30 years after John may have written it. That's awesome. I mean, we've got great manuscript evidence for the Scripture. But, but I wanted to say, if you're wondering why that's not there, the, the oldest and the best manuscripts we have, they don't, they don't have the part about the angel stirring the water. Maybe the angel did stir the water. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it's something else happened. But what we do know is that there was this expectation in this man's mind that if I could get to that pool when it gets stirred, I'm going to get healed. That was his expectation. And uh, he can't seem to ever get there. Um, oh, I wanted to mention Craig Keener, who's a, a scholar on classic, the classics. He also uh, is a Pentecostal. He's filled with the Spirit and believes in the miraculous. So he's not some stuffy, detached scholar out there. He says... Uh, this may be may not be in the original. It was probably added early by a scribe familiar with the tradition 
of healing at the Bethesda pool. It explains the otherwise enigmatic phrase in verse 7 about the stirring of the waters. And so I'm not really interested in arguing uh, the whole point of whether there's an angel or there's not an angel. Uh, to me, that's minor relevance compared to John's point that Jesus can do greater things than these healing waters. That's his point, is that he can do better than having to get this guy into the pool. Jesus comes to where the man is, and that's significant. Okay, so think about this for a moment, that Jesus brought this man healing when he was looking for something else, the how. Let's talk about the how here. This uh, in verses 6 through 9. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? i I just like to point out the man's response. He doesn't say, yes, Jesus, would you heal me? Do you see that? He, what does he say? Some, nobody will get me into the pool. Maybe the implication is, sir, will you get me into the pool? I'm not looking to you to heal me. I need to get into those waters to get healed. And that's sometimes how we approach the things of God is like, God, I know you're a miracle worker, but if I could just have it done this other way, you know what I mean? And here I tend to think, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but you can make draw your own conclusion. I tend to think maybe there, there's a superstitious element here. This may be a grace from God that these pool waters are supposedly provide real healing. It might be a superstitious expectation. It seems to me this man has seen these things take place. There's mystery to this. I really don't know. But what I do know is that these waters are inferior to Jesus. Okay? So he's wondering, can somebody get me into these waters? Sir, uh, I have no one to help me get in the pool when it's stirred. I try to get there. I can't move very fast. Somebody else passes me and gets to the water and gets my miracle. Jesus said to him, uh, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once he was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day was the Sabbath. So the how, the how of the healing you can't explain every detail here, but I would like you to notice some things that I think are significant to this. First, it says in um, these verses, when Jesus learned, okay, so uh, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him. It seems to me that when Jesus speaks to him, the first time he speaks to him, he's going to ask him this question. So when it says he learned here, the Greek word there means he knew. He knew. Okay? Uh, gnosko. It's, we get our word knowledge from that. He, he knew. Uh, and actually, it's a participle, knowing. So Jesus saw him knowing that he had been in this condition for a long time. So this is Jesus knowing something that he didn't hear from somebody else and he didn't learn from another source. Are you, are you with me on that? Even our uh, more cessationist Bible scholars will say that that's the case. Jesus knew this. He knew. He knew something. And he knew it supernaturally. This is 
this is something like how the word of knowledge works in 1 Corinthians 14a. We talked about that on Sunday morning, but we had to rush through it. The word of knowledge is when uh, God drops a piece of information into your heart or into your spirit, into your mind, however you'd want to say that, something that you didn't naturally learn. It's a word of knowledge. Some piece of knowledge comes from, from God's all-knowing. He gives us a piece of knowledge that we need. And Jesus exemplifies that here, that he knows something about the situation. This isn't the first time in John's gospel that this happens, where he has this divine knowledge. Now, some will argue that Jesus knows this from his own divinity, and some will argue that, no, Jesus is relying upon the Holy Spirit to have this knowledge. I tend to think that because another place Jesus says in his humanity that he doesn't even know the day or the hour. That tells me that he has purposefully, for the sake of his mission, limited his knowledge as he walks as a man. Okay, that, That's how I understand it. And so, to me, what I think is happening here is that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he goes about doing good and healing all who are oppressed to the devil. So he's, he's through the power of the Spirit, knows what this uh, man's condition is like or how long it's lasted. This isn't the first time it's happened in John. Nathaniel was under the tree. I saw you when you were under the tree. And he's ready to follow Jesus after that. You, you know about that? Yeah, I know. And then also there seems to be a hint in his conversation with Nicodemus that he's reading Nicodemus's thoughts, his mail, not in a psychic kind of way, you understand, but like the Holy Spirit's revealing to him what's going on, right? So then you also have the woman at the well, right? Uh, go get your husband. What caused Jesus to ask that question? He knew she needed to deal with some sin. So he said, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've got, you've had five, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. And so he knew. He read her mail too. And so now, once again, I think this is the same thing at work here, whether it's through his own divinity or whether he's relying upon the gifts of the Spirit as he does this. Uh, I don't think it, it so much matters for this story because what it tells us is that he knows the condition. And I know that in his exalted state, he knows our needs, right? Do you know that? Then he knows. He's not unaware. It's not like when we pray, he's like, you're kidding. What? That's what you need? He's not ever caught off guard by that. But he invites us to come into fellowship with him to respond to those needs. So he asks that question that follows that, do you want to get, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? This isn't a ridiculous question, by the way, and some have gone down this road, and, and there's some something to think about with, and I'm not sure this is what uh, Christ intends, but some have asked the question or thought that maybe Jesus is getting at the fact that some people love their sickness, and that's true. Some people like, love, like their sickness, not like the sickness. They like the attention they get from it. You understand? It becomes part of their identity, like... I want, I want to be, I'm weak and I want to be known as that person or I want people to show me attention or I want to be catered to. And that, that's true. There's a, some books out now, and this is especially true in the world of the therapeutic. Um, and these are coming from psychologists and psychiatrists where they're realizing 
that we've become a disease culture. There's a book out, and I'm trying to think of the guy who wrote it, but you can Google it if you want, A Disease of One's Own, how we all have these psychological conditions we just have to uncover, as if we're all really sick. Uh, with that, we know that. It's called sin. It's called fallenness, right? Right? It's not just that we've... What we want to do is we want to be the victim, and that's, that's a, another title, The Victimizing of America. And uh, there's another one, the, the Triumph of the Therapeutic, and it's talking about how we've become so psychologically sick that, and I know that there are, there are real problems, and some are working through some of those things, and there are things that we can learn from observing human behavior. I'm not against that. But what I'm saying is that when everybody's sick, we start to wonder if anybody's sick at all. You know what I mean by that? Like, where is health? Where is there uh, health at all in this? So, Jesus asks the question, do you want to get well? I don't think he's asking this man, because it would be ridiculous, do you really want to get well? I mean, the guy is telling him he's trying to get into the pool. Jesus obviously knows his condition. That's not, I think, the point of the question, although it's a good one to contemplate. Do we really want to get well? Well, I hope you do. I hope we don't desire to live as victims. I hope we want to be victors in Christ. So why does Jesus ask that question then? Do you want to get well? It sounds like a really strange question. Who doesn't want to get well? But I don't think he's really asking the man if he really what he really wants. I think he's asking this man if he wants Jesus to heal him. If he's ready to direct his faith at Christ, I think that's what he's asking. Do you want to get well? I think he's trying to tease out this man's faith to put his faith in Jesus so Jesus can heal him. But this guy says he misses the the clue and he's like, I need to get to the pool and and not in a recreational way, if you know what I mean. He's asking, uh, Jesus I think here is asking to provoke his faith. In him and not the water. Jesus' question gets the response, I have no one to help me into the pool. And so uh, I think it's, it's significant that this man's faith, uh, his focus at least, has a flaw and it's limited. Um, so the question calls for him to put faith in Christ. The real point of this healing uh, option is this this other healing option is inferior to what Jesus is about to do for him. And his sources, Jesus' sources are unlimited. He's available anytime. You don't need another intermediary to get you to Jesus. He comes to where you are. I don't know, um, and I, we don't have our map up there, but I don't know how this encounter came about if Jesus was going through the temple and he came to where that man was, if the Spirit directed him directly to this and he knew there's a man there that needs healed. I don't know exactly how that went down, but Jesus comes to where that man is and heals him. There's some strange things about this. First of all, what I just mentioned, Jesus finds the man, the man doesn't find Jesus. Okay, And a lot of healing stories like Bartimaeus, remember Bartimaeus on the Jericho Road, what he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he shouted all the louder, and everybody's trying to get him to be quiet, but he's persistent. 
I need you to touch me. The, the woman with the issue of blood just says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, she seeks him out and presses in. I think there's something heroic about that. But here, this guy's kind of clueless. I don't mean that in an insulting way, but he's not looking for Jesus. He's looking to get in the water. And Jesus comes and finds him rather than the other way around. I hope you'll find when it comes to Jesus that we don't, have, we don't put him in this certain framework where he always has to respond exactly the same way. We're dealing with a real person here, okay? Not a vending machine. You see that? So sometimes people approach Jesus. Sometimes Jesus approaches him and his sovereignty. He can do that. The second thing that's interesting about this and a little bit strange is Jesus heals in spite of imperfect faith and incomplete knowledge. Okay? If we're waiting to get our faith perfect, we're striving to get perfect faith, and we're striving to have perfect knowledge, we're never going to be there. Amen. And I want you to know uh, that John is probably the oldest one in the room. And I'm not saying that as a insult. I'm saying that this is a man of experience with God. I'm saying we're not, we don't have perfect faith. We don't have perfect knowledge. If we're waiting for that moment, we'll never receive anything from God. Are you with me on that? I like that uh, father who brought his son to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if you can believe, I mean, the disciples are having their argument with the Pharisees trying to cast the demon out, but they can't do it. And Jesus comes down the mountain from uh, the transfiguration, and he comes right into the thick of a theological dispute. That's always beneficial, isn't it? When you got some little kid who's demon-possessed and they're arguing about theology over on the side. And... uh he says um, to the dad, why, why didn't you, and to the disciples, why didn't you cast him out? They said, we could not. And he's like, bring him to me. And the, he says to the father, uh, the father says to Jesus, if you can do something. Okay? And we have, if thou canst, all things are possible to him that believes. But it's probably more like this. If you can, question mark, exclamation point. If you can, do you realize who you're talking to here? All things are possible to him that believes. And then the man says this, I believe, help my unbelief. You know what that tells me? He didn't have perfect faith. His faith was imperfect. Jesus uh, heals the boy anyway. And so this is kind of a mystery, and it moves outside of our formulas, and it has to be this way, and it has to be that way. So Jesus heals in spite of this man's imperfect faith and incompetent, you know, his in, incomplete knowledge. He doesn't know all of who Jesus He doesn't even know Jesus' name. We find out in just a minute. So Jesus heals him. He's looking for the pool, but Jesus heals him. He doesn't have knowledge of who Jesus is, but Jesus heals him. Here's the third thing that's kind of strange about that. Remember how we talked about there are other people lying around that are sick? Jesus doesn't appear to heal anyone else, just him. Like none of those other people were seeking him. How come they don't get a blessing too? There's something sovereign about this, and I think it's it leads into a bigger picture, and I don't know why uh, he chose this particular man, but 
it doesn't appear that Jesus heals anybody else because when the description comes, he heals him and then he slips off into the crowd. Like, you would think that if he's wanting to boost his popularity, and that's really a wrong picture of what Jesus is trying to do. He's not just trying to get popular. He's trying to save the world. Okay? So you would think he would want to stick around and let the accolades come in, let the crowds grow and witness to all of those people. But he's working within the time frame of the Holy Spirit. and He's following the detailed plan of God step by step. And so he doesn't wait around. The controversy and the... Um, what's the right word for the buzz? It's going to follow him and it's going to find him. And it always seems to. But he doesn't appear to heal anyone else. And then the fourth thing is, Jesus, as I said, Jesus leaves the scene and lets the drama develop on the side. Okay, So I don't know exactly what to make of the water situation, but I will tell you this, that already in the Gospel of John, water has been significant, hasn't it? What's Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine, and that's in John 2, right? John 2, verse 6. And do you remember what the water in the jars, why it was in there? Cleansing. It was ceremonial washing jars. Okay? John chapter 3, Jesus talks to one of the teachers. What's his name? And what does he talk about? Being born of water and of the Spirit. He's talking about cleansing, being cleansed, okay? And then um, in chapter 4, he meets the Samaritan woman at a well, and what's he ask her for? And what's he offer her? Living water, right? So water is pretty significant up to this point in John. Are you with me? And so Jesus shows that he replaces the water of ceremonial purification in chapter 2 and 3, in chapter 4, he replaces the holy water of a Samaritan holy site. He's more significant than that. And in chapter 5, he uh, replaces the supposedly healing waters by restoring this man. He's more significant than all the symbolism. The reality has come. Do you get that? That it's beyond symbolism. This is the reality. The hard thing about that is, is that we love the tangible because we're materialists. By nature. Like if we can see it and feel it and touch it, we're glad for that. We get a little iffy when we have to rely upon things. Like this is one of the reasons in the early church there were some who were Judaistic Christians that wanted to go back to the old elements. They like the touch. They like the smell. They like all of the pageantry that went with it. And what God was calling them to was something that was far more real but far less tangible in terms of the material. But it's the reality, right? I don't have time to dwell there, but I'd love to spend some time another time talking about that. So Jesus is showing himself far better than the symbolic, the sacramental, and the superstitious spiritualities of his day. All right, let's talk about the controversy here. I didn't talk about the wind. It's on the Sabbath. Keep that in mind as we go forward because this leads us into the controversy. We know it's around a festival time, and we know that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and that's a big problem for some of these people. The healing uh, serves as a segue into a bigger discussion about the nature of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, Can God do good things for us on the Sabbath, or is he resting too? 
Do you know the Bible says that on the seventh day, God rested? Has he been resting ever since? Don't answer that. Think about it for a moment. Okay, let's take a look at our text here. So Jesus is going to interact with the human traditions, and uh, none of that's going to keep him from doing the will of the Father. So notice the problem here in verses 10 through 13. It says in uh, verse 10, and actually we'll pick up part of verse 9, once the man picked up his mat and he walked, the day in which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, hey, it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, hey, the man who told me, to, uh, who made me well, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And I didn't talk about this, but when did the miracle take place? What's that? Okay. When he spoke it? When the man got up? I, here's how I think the Bible describes how faith and, and uh, miracle works together, is that God speaks, and when he speaks, we believe, and the miracle takes place there. So remember Jesus, he broke the bread, he blessed it, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and the miracle happened in his hand. I just think that this is the way it is described in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So we hear, and faith wakes up in our heart. And I think, too, this is the way that uh, some miracles take place in our life, is that we hear the the word as it's written here, but there are times when God is applying that word directly to us by his spirit. And when he does, some something turns on right here. And when it does, we believe. And when we believe, God does it. Okay? So we're responding to a kind of word that God has spoken. So the miracle took place. He took up his mat and he walked. Now he's getting in trouble for it. He's walking probably through the temple, or maybe he's trying to avoid the temple, but he gets caught by the religious leaders. And uh, they say to him, you shouldn't be dragging your mat around on the Sabbath. That's against the, the rules. Um, and so I wanted to, to point out here, is, this, uh, is it in the law that you shouldn't carry your mat around on the Sabbath? Is it? And that's that's what I'm getting is from this is that they took the law and then they expanded it and said if we're gonna avoid breaking the law we've got to put some fences out here call them fence post laws so that if we don't break the fence post laws we'll never get close to breaking the law that God's given us but then what happened is they put those fence posts they gave it the same authority as the law of God and that would have been I don't know if it's okay but it would have minimized the damage if they hadn't also expected everybody else to follow the fence post laws. Like if you, if that's your conviction, fine, but don't make everybody else follow your man-made law, right? And that's good preaching, isn't it? That is good preaching. So they put those out there, and then people violated them. They're angry about that. Uh, you shouldn't carry your mat around on the Sabbath day. Who, uh, who was it that healed you anyway? And the guy says, um, I don't know. 
but it's whoever told me to take up my mat and walk. He he told me to, to carry it, and so I did in response to that. And so they asked him, who is this fellow uh, that told you? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14, later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's uh, that's a fine thank you, isn't it? So notice Jesus found him in the temple. I don't know if this is the first time he's gone into the temple. You know, there are some restrictions to people for people going into the temple. I wouldn't know if it would apply to this man, but... Uh, maybe because of mobility, maybe because of now being able to do so in accordance with the the law or the the human traditions that have have come up, he can now go into the temple and worship. But Jesus finds him in there and says to him, "Stop sinning. What are we to make of that? Or something worse will come upon you." It could be that this man. Uh, had sinned at some point, although it seems kind of unlikely because it was a long time ago. People didn't live to be really old in those days. It seems unlikely that he committed some kind of sin in his youth and God sent the sickness as a punishment. But that's poss- it's a possibility because sometimes it happens. But I would encourage us not to be rigid about this. Not every sickness is the consequence of a direct sin. Do you understand what I mean by that? Okay, uh, we live in a fallen world, and as the consequence of general sin, there's general sickness. Sometimes God uses sickness to prod and to wake up people who otherwise have, will not, and so he uses that for that reason. Or maybe you would be more comfortable saying he allows the enemy to attack a life in that way. However you'd want to say that. There are some times where sin and sickness are connected, but not always. You can see it in the Old Testament. You can see it sometimes in the New Testament. But it's not always the case, and we're going to find out in John 9 that uh, when the disciples assume this blind guy was there because either he sinned or his parents, he said, who sinned this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. This is for the glory of God. There's something else at work here. Don't subject this man to your narrow formulas. And I would caution us, let's be careful in assuming if somebody's sick that they've got sin in their life. You better know if you say something. You know what I mean? That's, it's dangerous not to. Because I can tell you a number of people I know that in addition to their battling with an illness, now they have condemnation put on their lives. And that's hard to overcome. So why does Jesus say this? Maybe this is a warning, and I would just tend to take this in as general possible because we just don't know. Don't sin or something worse may come upon you. What's the something worse? Another sickness worse than that? I don't think that's what he has in mind. It could be, but I don't think so because when you follow the discussion out in verse 29, Jesus starts talking about the last judgment. And so verse 29, um, it talks about those who are in graves will come out and those who've done good uh, will rise to live, and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So he's talking there about judgment, 
And you remember that follows suit with what he said in other Gospels. Don't fear the one that will kill the body, but the one that can take the body and soul and throw it into hell. And, and uh, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter the, the kingdom maimed than to be thrown into hell whole. You know, those kinds of things. So I think that when he says something worse, that you think it's bad living with a sickness for 38 years, if you keep on sinning and you go to hell, that's going to be far worse than what you faced here. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Some people live with hell here, and then they go to a far worse place. That's tragic. So he says, stop sinning or something worse will come upon you. All right, let's move through this, that second encounter. And then there's the problem too, verse 15 through 18. Uh, the man went and he told on Jesus. Can you believe that? He goes and finds those guys and says, well, it was Jesus that healed me. Maybe he was wanting to get off their naughty list or get off the hook in some way. And so he tells them it was Jesus who told me to do this. Uh, he didn't want to have his spiritual demerit. But whatever reason, he told uh, on Jesus, verse 16 says, from that moment they began to persecute him because he had worked on the Sabbath. They weren't ready to rejoice at the man's healing. They were ready to say, you didn't do it our way, and so uh, you're, uh, you're out. Verse, um, and it, it tells us then that he tried all the more to, they tried all the more to kill him. So we're beginning to see what John will talk about, a mounting opposition. Things are changing in the ministry of Jesus from already early on from a place of popularity to a place now where opposition is beginning to rise. They try to kill him and all the more uh, because he had healed on the Sabbath. Let's just read this last part here, verse, um, verses, why am I in chapter 4? Verse 15 through 18 and follow, we'll read verse 16 and following. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And his defense, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So I asked the question earlier, has God been resting since Sabbath? What do you think? No, he has not. Jesus says, and this is, it never clicked with me until today. He's dealing with a Sabbath question when he says this. My father's working. And the point is, even on the Sabbath, the father is working. And he says, and because of my special mission, I'm working too. Even on the Sabbath, there are people that need to be healed. There are people that need to be uh, saved and delivered even on the Sabbath. This isn't the only time that he runs into religious controversy for doing something on the Sabbath. And it's his prerogative because he is the Lord of the Sabbath to do something different with the Sabbath. Are you with me? The Sabbath was made for man, not for God. God doesn't need to rest. Are you with me on that? What does uh, Isaiah say in chapter forty? Is it chapter 40 or 41 where he says that even the youth will faint and be weary and the young men utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And before that, he says, he doesn't grow tired or weary. God doesn't. Jesus is operating within a narrow time frame. 
So then it says this. That's this last part, and we're gonna. I'm gonna end with two minutes left here, if we can. This reason they tried to kill him because um, of breaking the Sabbath, not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John makes this claim again and again in um, his in his. Uh, gospel that Jesus claims to be God, and yet there are people out there that say, well, he never claimed to be God. If you know the culture, if you know the literature, you know Jesus made these claims both expressively and in subtle ways. He was making this, and that's how all the opposition took it, is that he's blaspheming. And John wants to stand up and cheer and say, amen. He is the Son of God. We don't need to dive into pools for our healing. We can come to Jesus. We can come to Jesus, especially in terms of superstition. You understand that God is not opposed. I don't, I'm not going to dive into that issue. We're already out of time. All right, another time. Uh, keep you wondering. All right, well, why don't we stand? Let's thank the Lord for showing himself to be superior. That's what this, I think, is about, is that while somebody was looking for something else, that the kindness and the mercy of Christ found him and brought healing to his life, and he showed once again that he's worthy of our our trust. All right? Father, thank you for sending Jesus, and he's, all, he's, he's more wonderful than we've realized, Lord. And I pray that you help us to put our complete confidence in him and Rather than running to every other solution, I pray that you help us to look first to you and look holy to you and know that you're able. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, keep our eyes off of the, the symbols except where they point to you and away from the superstitions and help us to, um, to be confident in you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.